invite you to turn to the 24th Psalm. 24th Psalm, if you are new or you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some Bibles in front of you and it will help you to follow along during this message. And I invite you to turn, if you have one of the thicker black Bibles, it's on page 458 or one of the thinner black Bibles, it's 428. Either 458 or 428. We would love for you to take one of those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take it and keep that Bible. And we'd love for it to be a gift to you from us. We are in the 24th Psalm as we continue a series that goes through the Psalms about 10 or 15 a year. I want to ask you this question, who do you belong to? It was meant to be rhetorical, but I guess you can, who do, I'm glad you answered, God, the Lord, Jesus, who do you belong to? We, we long to belong, kind of rhymes, to belong to a family, he's my dad, I belong to him, she's my mom, that's that's my son. That woman, Molly, I belong to her. Synonyms to belonging, words like acceptance, attachment, union, closeness, fellowship, kinship. Can it get any more beautiful than this? The Lord is my shepherd. Last week, Psalm 23. And we could say it in another way. I am the Lord's sheep. The psalmist said it that way in Psalm 100, verse 3. Know the Lord, that the Lord, He is God, He has made us. And we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us bow before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 95, 6 and 7. We are his if we're in Christ. Are you his? Does that mean something to you this morning that you belong to Jesus, to God? Do you live moment by moment, day by day, in light of that reality? And how did he do this, making you his? With this in mind, let's look at Psalm, this Psalm 24. I'd like to have you read it with me like we did last week. So if you have your an ESV Bible, you can follow along there and you're going to read it. And if not, it should be on the screen. And so you can follow along with me. Would you read it with me? I'll try to set the pace. I just love to hear the congregation's voice reading these Psalms. They were meant for the congregation. Let's read it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. I guess I'll say it this way. Because this is the word of God, all God's people said, Amen. In this psalm, we face a glorious and holy God. And in this psalm, though we could go into the history of this psalm and what was this possibly used for and what does the church use it for, I want to skip past this and I want to just jump right into this text and bring you to three amazing, all-encompassing realities that are based really from the three divisions or three kind of sections of this psalm. It's divided in verses 1 and 2 is section 1, and then 3 through 6 is section 2, and and then 7 through 10 is section 3. And there we see three amazing, all-encompassing realities. And I want to say it this way. These are realities that are... Not just my truth or someone else's truth. It is the truth. It is comprehensive, meaning it impacts everyone, whether they like it or not. And it impacts everything, whether they recognize it or not. These realities are unmovable, more unmovable than the the law of gravity. You cannot change these realities. And ultimately, you cannot ignore these realities just like you not, cannot ignore the, the law of gravity. And these realities are really serious. Meaning, don't th- these are not something to snooze through today. They're not something in this life for you to ignore and think that they're unimportant to your life. They're really serious. Can I use the word? There's a gravity to it. There's a weightiness to it. A a kind of, I can't miss this. I need to listen up and and take this reality into account for my life. But it's not just serious. It's awesome. It is, when I say awesome, I mean when we really come to grips with this, it should move our hearts to like leap with either falling to the ground in, in, in worship and confession of sin, but also of lifting up our arms to God in a way of ex- exhilaration and joy. It, it, it's awesome in that it should re- lead to a type of freedom and joy. And lastly, I'll say these realities are really urgent Please, please don't, don't yawn into, into this consciousness of I've 
heard these before. I've grown and gone to church all my life. And I'm, I know this. It's really urgent for you to take them seriously every day of your life. These realities that this psalm brings us to. And so here are three all-encompassing realities from each of the sections of this psalm that we just read together. Here they are. And the first begins in verse 1 and 2. So let me read Psalms one and, verses 1 and 2 again. It would be helpful if you look with me at your Bibles. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Or in other words, the earth is the Lord's and everything in the earth. The world and all those who dwell in it, all the inhabitants and creatures of the earth, they all are the Lord's. For he has found it upon the seas, and he's established it upon the rivers. Reality number one, God owns us. God owns you because he made you and he made everything. These verses state this comprehensive and serious and glorious truth that everything in this universe is owned by God, period. You belong to God because he made you. He made all things and he owns all things by right of makership. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on in chapter 1 to describe all his creation. In chapter 2, he zeroes in and focuses on his creation of mankind made in his image, man, male and female. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Not just, not just a male, but male and female, he created them. And at the end of that chapter, verse 31, and God saw everything he made, that is everything. He made, he behold, it was very good. And there was evening in the morning, it was the sixth day. And then as you move into chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God, it zeroes in on how he made man in his image. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils life, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted him in the garden in the east, the Garden of Eden where he put the man whom he had formed, and he describes how he brought and made woman and brought them together, and they were given a mission. They were to be rulers of this garden and to take care of it to the glory of God in sweet and beautiful blessing and fellowship, world without end, with God, in absolute bliss. That was what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. But I want you to stop here and I want you to just ponder, sit in your chair and think for a minute. Say to yourself quietly, you can or you can't, but I just suggest it. Daniel, you belong to God. You were made by God. He made you. He owns you. What this means is that because he made you, it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of their ad because he founded it, he did it, he made it. It means he knows you 
He knows your personality. He knows your genetic makeup. He knows your wiring. He knows your pet. He knows your fish, your goldfish and birds and all of the animals out there. He knows all things because he has made them. And the psalmist in Psalm 139 is going to declare that David says, or the psalmist says, For you formed my inward part. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance before I even existed. God, in your book were written Every one of them, the days that were formed to me, you, the creator, you created me and everything about me. God owns you. Can you think of a more unmovable, comprehensive, it just impacts everything else, reality? This means he knows you and he has designed you. It means he can command you. His owning of us is a really good thing. Because this God is not a killjoy God. He's a good God. He's a loving God. But he made you. And I love how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this. God made us. He says, he invented us as A man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol or gas. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine, us, to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There's no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from him because it is not there. There is no such thing. If we come to grips with this first reality, it changes everything. God owns you. Faith Church, God owns you. You belong to Him. Visitors, whether you are a Christian or not, you belong to God. He made you. Now the question is, He made us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But is that the story of humanity? It is not. And it is not the story of Genesis because we do not have to go past Genesis 3. We hit Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, there is the sin and the fall and the diminishing of God's plan. God made Adam and Eve to dwell with him and enjoy his presence and his blessing. But you see, they sinned and they fell. This brings us to the second reality and the second verse of Psalm 24 and so would you look at Psalm 24? Let's read, let me read 3 through 6. Who shall? The, there's a question. He says, who shall ascend or climb the hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord? And again, that word Lord means Yahweh, God, the I am, who always has been. 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place, the temple or the holy of holies, or in the presence of a holy God? And who, and here's the answer, verse 4. He gives four things. He who has clean hands, a pure heart. Three, who does not lift his soul to what is false. Four, does not swear deceitfully. And then in verse 5, he says, what's the result of standing in a holy place before God in his presence? Blessing. He will receive blessing from Yahweh, from God. And righteousness, that's the idea, vindication. He may suffer persecution, but he will be vindicated. He would be declared righteousness from God of his salvation. God will be his salvation. And he said, verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, that leads us to the second reality. The second reality that is immovable, it's comprehensive, it's serious, and it's awesome, and it's urgent. And it's this. Not only, is God, not only does God own you, but God is holy. He says, who will climb up to the mountain of God's holiness and stand in his presence and enjoy fellowship with him and be able to talk with him and be able to face a holy God and be where they were meant to be like in the Garden of Eden? And in verse 4, he says, he gives us a standard that in one sense, not one of us can actually say is true. Can one of you sit here today and say, Pastor Daniel, with God as my witness, I have pure hands. My hands are... My, which means my deeds, all of, that symbolizes all of my actions in all of my life, is completely obedient to God and loving to others. Absolutely. My hands have never been soiled by any, any, anything that would be unloving and of any kind, both to God or man, or, or disobedient. And, and regarding my heart, because that's where it comes from, my heart is where my motives are, my desires. My heart has been absolutely pure. I always do everything right from a heart that is absolutely pure because I want God and Him alone in everything. And to add to that, I never, never lift up my soul to what is false. That means give, give in to idols. no. I wonder if there's anyone here that could say that. And if we're honest and we understand it rightly, I would say the answer is no. Friends, do you have clean hands? Are your hands or actions clean from pride and selfishness and pure motives? Are you full of humility, trust in God, love, gentleness, loving strength and courage? Where is your heart and motives? Do you lift up your heart to something that's false? Maybe it's a false sense of control and you think that's where it's found or comfort or money or safety or family, pleasure, the praise of man, selfishness. Some of those things, God's gifts. But do you lift up your heart to those and not to God? Do you give full, do you give generously to God the church, and to others that are in need? Do you give with generous hearts because you trust God with all your heart and you want him to to show him off? Do you give of yourself fully and care only what God thinks? 
Do you face every trial and difficulty in your life with a trust with God that God is working all things for good and therefore you're at peace and you do not deal with any anxiety because you just trust him? Do you tell the complete truth and do you live in all manners of your life with completely honest, completely honest in all things, in work and with taxes and with, any, with anything else? Have all the common idols we struggle with, are they far from your heart? And the piercing question should cause us to bow to God this morning and go, guilty, I'm not there. Oh God, if this is the standard, I cannot climb the mountain of God and stand in his holiness. God is holy. It means that he is completely pure and perfect and good. He is completely other than all things. He is holy, holy, holy. He is so other than us that his holiness, if we were to literally stand in his presence, it would cause us to tremble and cry out, take me because I am undone. I need to die because I do not belong in his presence. And we find in Genesis chapter 3 that because of the sin, immediately Adam and Eve, in their rebellion against God, they knew that they were naked and they were exposed and they knew there was something different and wrong and God took them out of the garden and he, let, he made them leave the garden and he put two cherubims in front of the garden, guarding it so they could not return, symbolizing they cannot return into that special presence of God's holiness and enjoy him like they would before sin. And this psalm says, who can come to God's holy place? Who can stand before him? And it says these qualifications. Now in one sense, there is a real sense then we as Christians, baptized believers, these seven just declared it, God is working in their hearts. And there is a one sense where we can now say, by God's grace, because I am forgiven by Jesus Christ, I stand here today on Sunday morning, February 13th, having confessed my sins, knowing I'm not perfect, but I do believe that my hands are clean, having looked to him, and he's changing me. And my heart is growing to have right motives because he's changing me. And my deceit, I don't lie like I used to. I am becoming a person of the truth. And I used to just look to other things and give myself to money or to comfort or pleasure or relationships or care what people think too much. And now I'm realizing I care about what he thinks. My motives are being shaped in my love. And I'm not turning to those idols, but to God. There is a real sense in which we can say that. But why can we say that? And where do we look to to really get to that place? The holiness of God is a big problem for each one of us. You and I were made to live upon God and in his presence. And, and God's holiness and our lack of holiness means there is a divide Cut down, we cannot enter his presence. And for some would say, Well, I'm just not religious, so I don't want to go there. God's truth is going to is unbreakable and is a real utter reality, and we will face the holiness of God. We can try to ignore it, and we will ignore it to our eternal peril. 
And this psalm calls us to think upon the holiness of God and to embrace Him. According to this, it says, He who stands in His presence and is clean this way receives the blessing of the Lord. We need to receive this blessing that's mentioned in verse 5. We need his righteousness. We need his vindication. We need his help. We are his and we need him. We were made for the presence of God. He is holy. We are not. We are unclean. And he only accepts those who are clean, it says here. And it comes to a picture in the Old Testament. Let me just bring you back to a story in the Old Testament when Moses was actually at the mountain of Mount Sinai where God's presence specially was at the top of the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and none of the people could climb up the mountain and yet God invited Moses to climb up the mountain and to ascend the holy hill and to stand in his holy presence. And as he came up to that mountain... God declared who he was, revealed his holiness to that man, Moses. And this is what he said. He said to Moses, this is my name. And and he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, the God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands, and I forgive iniquity and transgression, but here's the, hear this statement, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And I will visit, visit upon them their iniquity. He is the God, he is a maker, he is a savior, and yet he says, this is the riddle of the Old Testament. How can God who show mercy and steadfast love and clear the guilty. It says, he says he will be, show his mercy and he will be gracious, slow to anger, and forgive sins. Forgive sins, guilty people, but never clear the guilty. How can he do both? It contradicts. If he clears the guilty... If he forgives sins, it's like he's clearing the guilty, but he just said he won't clear the guilty, so how can he forgive sins and show steadfast love and mercy? And it's this riddle that the Old Testament rings with. How can a holy God stand, how can unholy people stand before a holy God as this psalm rings? And we find story after story, pictures pointing to God was going to make a way to answer this riddle. He's holy. He must punish sin and sinners. And where is the answer? And I would suggest to you the answer is found in the third verse of Psalm, the third section of Psalm 24. So will you look with me at the final section in verses 7 through 10? The psalmist says, in a type of, it sounds like a service, and I almost wanted to do this with you and say, I would ask the question, I would make the statement and ask the question and you would answer it. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in, who is the king of glory. 
And the answer is, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, he says once again, just like seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? And this is meant to, for us to rig in our hearts. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And this psalm ends. I just want you to follow the progression here. God owns you. He made everything. But God is holy. And who can stand and abide in his presence? Who is worthy? As we just sang. Who is worthy? No one. And yet... This last section invites, calls out, and says to an ancient city, probably Jerusalem. It's saying, all you ancient doors that enter into the city, will you wake up? Will you lift up your drooping, sleeping head? You've been waiting and watching for a long time for something great to happen. Will you wake up and will you let this coming king, the king of glory, come in? And this could have been used during the time of David coming in with the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as they brought the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, into the, the temporary tabernacle and eventually Solomon's temple. But I believe this passage is a picture of saying the answer to who can ascend the holy mountain the answer of who can bring blessing to God's people and a generation that seeks him, verse 6, is found in a king of glory who must come. Is there an answer? There must be a king of glory who is mighty in battle and strong. He is the God of hosts. He must come. And the answer is reality number three is this. God has come and he will come again. This is reality number three that you must not ignore and I pray that we as Christians, as believers that embrace the truth of this book will embrace with all our heart as God has come. And he came in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will come again. This psalm is written as though he hasn't come yet. Because David is writing this as a picture of a coming king, a king of glory, who is mighty in battle. He can ascend to the holy mountain and stand in his holy presence and receive blessing and vindication and be a blessing to all the peoples that look to this king. He is the king of glory. He is the king of the heavenly armies. The, that's that word host, the king of hosts. He is the Lord himself. You see what this says here, but the word that he doesn't just say another king is coming. The king of glory is God himself. He says, who is the king of glory? The Lord. Not small Lord as like a title, official title of a human person. This is more than that. This is God himself is going to be the one that can come to God's holy presence on behalf of us, his people. And so this reality is we stand as Christians today and we rejoice and we live under his ownership and we live in his holiness in the real and we can stand here and say he's cleaning my hands he's cleaning my heart is because this king of glory came to remove deceit from my heart to remove me from giving my soul to worthless things that will only destroy and leave me, but to bring me to himself. 
There are so many places we could tie this in, and I want to give, come close to wrapping this up. When in, in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. You can look there, John, this is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. I can hear the, the earth is the Lord's and his fullness. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life and in him is the light of men. In verses 10 through 14, this, and I'm going to say king of glory, who made the world, came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, 1 John 10. And the world did not know him. They didn't recognize this king of glory. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, hear this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Jesus is the king of glory. Glory as the son, only son of the father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is the son of glory. Jesus is the one who has come so that we who've been made by him can not just, not just be created, but become his children of God because this son of glory came in order that if we believe on him, we receive his grace. And that grace takes means our hands are clean, our hearts are made pure, and that's a progress, that's a process. Baptism is a symbol of its start. It, it, he's, he's doing it. He's going to do it. But it's a lifelong process of him growing us who are bumbling and fumbling and often wandering Christians continuing to look to him. And yet this king of glory went and he was able to go to the holy place of God and be the king of glory for us. And he is coming again. This Jesus, this king of glory, the Lord mighty in battle as it says, the Lord of hosts and armies will come again and he will punish all sin and sinner. He will punish the great instigator in this world, Satan and the devil. He will destroy all that have not repented and turned to him. And it says by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we need to know these words and love them. That he will come on a day to be glorified with his saints. And he will be marveled at among all who have believed because of the testimony we believed in him. This Jesus is going to come. Friends, I want to say to you for the 150th or 200th or 1,000th time or the first time, receive the king of glory. Receive him once again this morning. Receive him. Believe on him. Believe that he is your only hope. 
and he's enough hope. Believe that he is the only answer to the emptiness, and he's the real answer. Believe that he is the forgiveness of sins, completely free and absolutely eternal. This morning, look to the Son, Jesus, who is worthy and able to enter into the presence of God, and he made a sacrifice for everyone's sin who would turn to him and receive him with empty hands saying, I have nothing to bring. I just accept your free gift. Can it be? This seems too good to be true. And when, he, when we receive him, he takes us and he makes us his own and puts his nature in us and starts to change our heart as we heard the testimonies of these seven We belong to someone that really matters. We need to belong to the one who made us and redeemed us. We do belong to none other than the king of glory if we have learned, looked and turned to Christ. The Lord strong and mighty. I invite you to his family. And those who are already his family, I invite you to, like, savor this. Live, ba- live your lives based on this. Drink in the reality that he owns you and he is holy and he has come and he's coming. As the worship team comes, I invite you to come. And in fact, I'm going to invite those who are going to get baptized. You can go ahead and get ready. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, brings us to a final picture of God. No, Jesus. A picture of Jesus and of the end time of them coming and seeing the presence of Jesus. And it is a glorious description of Jesus, the King of glory, sitting on a throne And it says that there were these creatures, four living creatures, and they had wings. And this is all symbolic language to declare something so glorious and beautiful. And it says they gathered around and they said this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's coming. And whenever the living creatures Give glory and honor and thanks to him who are seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And they all said, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Note this, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And he was slain for us, this king of glory. Oh, what a glorious truth to live out as changed people belonged, belonging to him. Father, I do pray that you would help me and everyone in this room, the seven going to get baptized, and everyone, family and friends, church family, visitors, help us to 
to be able to sing in our hearts joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Help us to do that. Let's help us to receive you today once again by faith, trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen.